pray. Father, during this missions month, it is indeed a privilege to partner with so many godly people around the world who are seeking to advance your kingdom and share the good news about Christ. Here, Lord, we learn of this need in Thailand with the children whose parents are affected uh, being in prison, their families affected because of it, and uh, Lord, a great need of reaching out. So, uh, continue, Lord, to use us as a means of encouragement and support for this ministry, as, as, as well as the many others that uh, we are partnering with. Thank you, Lord, that during this month we also have the opportunity to meet many of our missionaries, and we pray for Missions Week that is coming up, that your blessing and presence would be there in a very powerful way. Now, Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Toward the end of World War II, it was 1944, a small division of Japanese soldiers were sent to a tiny island called Lubang in the jungles of western Philippines. Uh, Their mission was rather simple. They were to spy on the U.S. forces and to conduct guerrilla warfare whenever possible. But it wasn't too long after they were sent to the island that the Allied forces defeated the Japanese Imperial Army in the Philippines, and most of the troops left the island. But there was a few who stayed on and would not surrender, some holdouts, like Lieutenant Hiru Onoda. They decided that they would continue on the war, but after a period of time, some of those Uh, People gave up, and some of them died, but Hiru Onoda continued by himself to fight World War II in the jungles of the Philippines. He believed that when he heard messages that the war was over, it was merely a propaganda trick of the enemy. He wasn't willing to give up. He survived on food that he would capture in the jungles or food that he would steal from local farmers, and he hunkered down in the jungle for almost three decades. (laughs) It wasn't until 1974 that they had to send his former commanding officer to him and not only inform him, but persuade him that indeed the war was done. And secondly, to give him his official release. At that point, in a tattered old army uniform, Onoda handed over his sword and gave up the fight. He wrote a book entitled, Will Not Surrender, and in 19, when was it, 2014, I believe, he died at the age of 91. Now, what is tragic about this is to think of this soldier living in a conduct in a context uh, not connected with reality, out of touch with what is really happening. And secondly, all the efforts to maintain a war that did not exist were wasted efforts. And finally, the thought that he could have been living in peace instead. He chose to live in turmoil and conflict. Now, when I think about that situation, I think that there are some parallels to what we find in Hebrews chapter 9. Let me encourage you to turn there. 
And the parallel connects with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant given by God was good, but it was temporary, and it was going to be replaced by a better one. The prophet said Messiah would be coming. Jeremiah talked about a new covenant, not written on tablets of stone like the law of Moses, but written on fleshly hearts. And this would be a better covenant, and it would replace the old. The old becomes obsolete. It's no longer functioning. It is not effective. It's time to give up the fight. And yet there were a group of people who having come to Christ and tasted of the goodness of Christ, and some were genuine believers, because of persecution and other things, were now being tempted to go back to Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is trying to convince them not to do that. So when we get to chapter 9, there is a series of comparisons between the old and the new, the first and the better that has just come in the person of Jesus Christ. The old covenant uh, had a tabernacle that God had given to Moses, designed by God, built by the generosity of the Hebrew people who donated resources. It was God's plan. But now there's a better tabernacle. We read about that in chapter 9 in verse 11. It is a more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, it is established in the heavens, not of this earthly created order. And in this better tabernacle, there are better sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrifices were animal sacrifices. Blood was required. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But animals were used. But with the new covenant, it's the blood of Jesus. In the Old Covenant, they had to repeat the sacrifices year after year after year. But in the New Covenant, it was once for all. And it's interesting to listen to the circular reasoning of the writer. <clears throat> Not so much circular reasoning as much as he is just repeating what he's already said because the point is so powerful, he wants to make sure you get it. So it's repeated over and over and over again that Jesus died once. And that was enough. And so we have a better covenant. But I want to focus on a comparison under the category of cleansing or perhaps forgiveness. So look at verse 13. Hebrews 9.13, the blood of goats and bulls and the ash, ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. That's the old covenant. Imagine the situation. You have traveled a long way to be there for Holy Week You've got money in your pocket to purchase an animal, and once you do, you stand in line with all the others to bring it to the altar, to bring it to the priest. Finally, when you are at the front, they take the animal, they slay the animal, and they splash the blood on the altar of sacrifice. 
They'll burn the animal but splash the blood and then sprinkle some of that blood on the grateful believer who has come a long distance to have atonement for his sins. And there had to be a moment of ecstasy, of excitement and joy when finally it was done, the requirement was fulfilled and forgiveness was found. Until on the way home, the worshiper was reminded that he has to come back and do it next year. And maybe he makes his reservation for the motel that he just stayed in or the family that gave him lodging. He plans about coming back and saving money so that he can buy another sacrifice to do it all over again. And the nagging conscious conscience of an, of an honest worshiper would cause tremendous mental anguish because although my sins have been covered, they are not gone. And every repeat of this process only ingrains in my mind the fact that I am not totally forgiven. You know, every religion is exactly like that. Every religion outside of Christianity, is man trying to reach God. And man tries to reach God by acts of goodness, deeds of benevolence, spiritual acts, or sometimes penance, the punishment of the body, the, uh, the removal of of anything that might be comfortable. The austere poverty life to gain favor with, with God. All religion seeks to appease and gain favor with God through acts. Except for Christianity. Religion is man seeking God. Christianity is God seeking man. Coming to this earth makes all the difference in the world. Religion is never done. Jesus died once for all and said on the cross, it is finished. That's why the new covenant is so superior. The blood of bulls and goats, yes, can make you clean, but notice the qualifiers. Ceremonially clean, outwardly, verse 13 says, so it's for a short period of time, according to the requirements of the old law that is no longer binding, and it only does this outwardly, but man's real problem is inward. The real problem. That's what it is. The real problem in my heart is that I still have sin in my soul. We don't need ritual cleansing. We need the purification of our heart. All our greatest spiritual problems are internal. And they cannot be dealt with with mere outward deeds. And so this anguish that I'm feeling in my heart only builds as I see that this is never going to end. And the conscience is stricken with guilt. It's an interesting story in the Old Testament with David. He was a warrior 
under the leadership of King Saul. But everyone knew David was going to be the new king. Saul knew it. God had told him. And so Saul, who had brought David in, and David served as a great warrior, soon became greater than the king. David became greater than the king. The jealousy stirred in Saul's heart, and he tried to eliminate David. They're having dinner, and he throws a spear at him. That's an indication that he may not like you, David. But it's shocking that it happens another time. I wouldn't go back, frankly, for a meal, but it happens a second time. And then David is on the run with a group of followers, and Saul follows him with the armies of Israel. And David's hiding in a cave by Engedi on the western shores of the Dead Sea. And in God's amazing providence, Saul ends up going in that same cave. Doesn't know that David's deeper in. Saul takes a bit of a rest, and David's men say, Now God has brought the king into your hand. Kill him. You're the rightful king. And David says, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Remember that? Wow. But David did decide that he wanted to prove that he could have killed Saul, so he, he got close to Saul, cut off the corner of his robe, and then came back to his hiding place. And when Saul was done resting, he went out. And then David went to the mouth of the cave and boldly said, I have the corner of your robe. I cut the robe. I could have killed you. And Saul said, you're more righteous than I am. I'll stop following you. And Saul went home for a short period of time before he did it again. But the scripture says this about David. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of the king's robe. In other words, his conscience was, was staggering under the burden of a presumptuous act that many of us would have justified. Oh, but if you have a sensitive conscience to the law, any violation is a staggering burden. And you and I were never meant to carry the weight of our sin because we can't do it. It's too heavy. So this cleansing that comes is just for a period of time. And the sacrifices repeated remind the sinner of their sin, that it's not gone. And for all the sophistication of the ceremonial rites in first century Judaism, they never experience freedom and release from the consciousness of sin until Jesus comes. And then you go from the problem to the purging. That's verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purge your conscience, is the old translation. And the way I memorized it years ago. To cleanse your conscience from acts that lead to death or from dead works, so that we may serve the living God. So our problem is this reality of sin and a guilty conscience burdened heavily with our sin and no way out until the new covenant comes. And how much more will the blood of Christ, 
purge your conscience. Did you notice in verse 14 that salvation is a Trinitarian act? It is the act by the triune God. For the Bible tells us that the eternal spirit offers the sacrifice. Some people think this refers to the spirit of Christ, but uh, most scholars believe it refers to the Holy Spirit, and I think that's right. It's the Holy Spirit, the eternal Holy Spirit, who takes the sacrifice of Christ up to heaven. And it's the blood of Christ which is the sacrifice. And it is brought into the presence of the living God. For the Father is the author of salvation, and Jesus is the answer and the Holy Spirit is the agent who brings it to our soul. And salvation is the work of the, of the work of the triune God. And when God does something, he does it well. And when God saves sinners, he does it, does it forever. So we have this wonderful salvation, and it's time for us to live like people who are free indeed. One of the shows I enjoy watching from time to time is Finding Your Roots. And uh, the moderator and host is Dr. Lewis Gates. And he brings in celebrities, and they've already done the research, and they'll go back into the ancestry of these celebrities. Have you ever seen that before? It's pretty interesting. And one day he had a celebrity on by the name of Phil Gavin McGraw, who is more popularly known as Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil was there, and they went into his ancestry and found out that he had some ancestors who had indentured slaves or servants. But the thing that struck me was this little phrase that Dr. Gates read to Dr. Phil. Your relative, so-and-so, was ordered to pay so much amount of money to the indentured servant for his freedom clothes. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? When you're a servant, you're usually wearing servant clothes. Joseph was wearing clothes of a servant when he worked in Potiphar's house and had to change those clothes or prison before he went into the presence of Pharaoh. So this person doesn't have any money to buy freedom clothes, so he's not walking around in an orange jumpsuit or the equivalent in that day. The point is this. When you are saved by the grace of God, you need to start walking in freedom clothes. Not in the old shackles or the old uniform of the law that keeps you bound, but in the joy and freedom of knowing you're forgiven. And one of the biggest problems in evangelical circles today is that those who name the name of Christ often think their acceptance before God is still based on their performance. And they're not walking in freedom clothes. Oh, what a horrible weight sin is. Oh, what a heavy burden, staggering burden, guilt is. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And when you are cleansed by that blood, my friend, you are free indeed. It's interesting to me that in Hebrews 4.12, we are told that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the division of the soul and spirit. Now, my understanding theologically is that there is no division of the soul and spirit. They overlap so much you can't divide them, which makes the point even more powerful. The word of God goes between them when there is no between. Or if you want to look at it from a physiological standpoint, the word of God goes even to the bone joints and the marrow of the bones. That's deep in you, right? That's deep in you. The word of God brings conviction to the depth of your soul. The whole context is conviction. But now I read in verse 14 that I'm cleansed so that I might serve the living God. The living word convicts me, but it also tells me of the living God who saves me. And when that living God saves me, he saves me for good. That's last week, if we could take that off. That will confuse me and everyone else. Thank you. Cleansing that penetrates to the inner recesses of our soul is what the blood of Christ does. Isn't that great? It's a mercy. And I'm saved from dead works. What does that mean? Well, it could refer to ceremonial works that are no longer in vogue, no longer effective. The old covenant's gone. Or it could refer to corrupt works as discussed in chapter 6, verse 1. Let us not, let us leave the elementary principles, the teaching about Christ, and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, from corrupt works. You you repent of those. So it could be ceremonial works, it could be corrupt works, or thirdly, it could be good works that we do to gain favor with God. All of those things are gone because I'm saved by the blood of Christ. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, freedom clothes. And now I'm free to serve. Notice the contrast between dead works and serving the living God. And that brings us to the third point, the purpose. So the problem is I still have sin within. The purging, verse 14, comes from the blood of Christ. But notice verse 14, there's a purpose because the end is not just to clean you up. A clean conscience is not the final goal. It takes you into a new way to live. If I don't have a clean conscience I'm gonna, and, and I'm conscientious, I'm going to spend all of my time trying to get that conscience clean, doing whatever I have to do. But 
If God has cleansed me and I'm accepted in Christ, accepted in the beloved, and there's nothing more I can do to improve that status because it's perfect, now I'm free to what? Free to serve others. In fact, don't miss the purpose statement in verse 14, the so that statement there's a little clause in the greek that's seen sometimes in the english it's translated therefore sometimes it's just the word that but every time i see it i like to write the the word so that it's a purpose clause something has been done so that something can happen and this scripture tells us we have been cleansed from dead works, useless rituals, whatever they may be, so that we can serve the living God. Now, this Greek word for serve is the same word for worship. And what it means is that as we worship the Lord, we are serving him, and as we service, serve him, we should be worshiping. Yes, it's kind of taken in the context of uh, the, the priests who are serving. But get this, you and I are priests. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we come to him, the living stone rejected by men but chosen of God and precious. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You and I are priests. He has made us a kingdom of priests to serve our God. And what do we do? We serve up spiritual sacrifices. He's going to talk about them in Hebrews, like giving thanks. Spiritual sacrifices. We are saved to serve. Now, you can't serve two masters. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either they will hate the one and despise the other, or they, they will hate the one and love the other, or they will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money is what the context says. But you could take the word money out and replace it with anything that you want to serve as a God. Usually, the word me is there. I want to serve me. I'm my God. I've got my own agenda. Everything in the world should revolve around me. But you cannot serve two masters, and you've been saved to serve one master the living God. Oh, he's not dead. <laughs> he's alive. He's present. He's powerful. He's glorious. He's holy. And he has saved me. And it's my joy to serve him. Not because I have to, but because I want to. Now, if someone claims to be a Christian and they're not serving the living God, there may be a variety of reasons for it, but one of the reasons could be this. They've never been freed from their sin. Or they don't know it, as 2 Peter chapter 1 says. You're myoptic. You cannot see afar off. You've forgotten that you've been purged. So what Christians need to do is to understand the gospel. 
and to believe the gospel and to enjoy the gospel and to live in the gospel so that you're free to serve other people. Some of us are so caught up in our own lives, we have no space for other people. And one of the ways we serve God is to serve others. So if you just go through the scripture, and let me give you some categories, and you can, you'll have to jot these down because this is going to be quick. There's some categories under this general heading of service. The first one is simply this idea that we have been freed to serve. That's what is being said in Roman or in, in Hebrews 9. But it's also stated in portions of Scripture like Zechariah's song of Zechariah chapter 1, where he's praising God for the coming of the Messiah. And he says, We are being rescued from the hand of our enemies and able enabled to serve God without dread or fear. Freed to serve. And that's the song Zechariah sang in light of the coming birth of the Messiah. Or Romans chapter 7, verse 6. By dying to what, what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we can serve in a new way, the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. It's not a regulation. The eternal Spirit has written it in our hearts if we're believers, and we long to serve freed to serve. Or 1 Thessalonians 1.9, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us, Paul says. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. You turned and you were freed from the bondage to old gods so that you might serve the true and living God. How about this category? You're gifted to serve. 1 Peter chapter 4, each one of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as a faithful steward of God's grace given to his body in many forms. You're gifted to serve. You, don't, you say, I don't know what I can do. I may not know either, but God knows. He gave you a gift. Use it to serve others. We've been enabled to serve, empowered, Philippians 3.3. For we are the true circumcision. We serve God by his spirit. So it's not only the God who saves us, but the God who empowers us and calls us to serve. But how should we do it? This will go fast. John 12.26. Whoever serves me must follow me, Jesus said. And when you follow me, my Father will honor you. The Father will honor the one who serves me. That was John 12. Romans 12, 11, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor always serving the Lord. So we serve God by following Christ. We serve with fervency. Or wholeheartedly, Ephesians 6, 7, serve wholeheartedly because you are serving the Lord and not people. Which is interesting because we're often commanded to serve people. But as we serve people, we need to look beyond them to the horizon of God himself. And we're not really serving people, we're serving God. 
as we serve others. Right? The end game is the glory of God. He's to be our focus. Or Hebrews 12, we haven't gotten there yet, but verse 28, therefore receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace through which we serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. Or how about Galatians 5.13? You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. No, use your freedom to serve one another humbly and in love. Jesus said the greatest among you is what? Servant of all. Oh, the Gentiles don't act that way, but we do. The greatest is the servant. And so I think, I'm afraid that we people have got, gotten into, and maybe it's a COVID thing, but we've gotten into this thing that our mindset, our default mode is not to serve. Instead of being the opposite, as a believer, we're called to serve. And we need to be serving somewhere. I asked for the staff to give me a list of opportunities, and they won't be on the screen, but let me just mention some of them to you, and there are more than these. Awana, the great children's ministry, needs substitutes, people to step in and help. A nursery, second hour, right now, needs people to work. And if you love children, that's a great place to serve. And if you don't love children, serve somewhere else. But there are other places. <laughs> My grandkids are in there. So <laughs> we have people who love kids. We need people to help in the kitchen. Legacy meals. Clean up after the meals. Saturate. 48917 still has 10 neighborhoods that need to be covered. Greeters and ushers. I went to a church recently in Florida, and I was amazed. Church a little bigger than ours, younger than ours, as far as when it was created. And they had so many servants. They had, and by the way, all their servants were wear, wearing a bright T-shirt. I don't know if we could do that at South. Wish we could, but they were wearing a, a bright T-shirt, and there was a bunch of them in the parking lot, old and young, and there was a bunch in the concourse area, and then there was a bunch in the church I couldn't get away from them. <laughs> no, I'm not coming here. No, I've been here before. I'm a pastor, so I'm from Michigan. You know, everyone's from Michigan in there. But we, I was so impressed with their commitment to serve. And I thought, we've got room to grow. AV needs some volunteers. We need people to make CDs. High school needs two male leaders to mentor other students. The chosen ministry is not functioning like it used to because we don't have people to help the adults with special needs. Helping Hands Ministry has so much that could be done. City Rescue Mission is calling for people. Where are the servants? We've been freed to serve. Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. And Paul said, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was it the mind of? Who... 
although he was God, did not consider it robbery to call himself equal with God, he took upon himself the form of a human being and was made like a servant. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. I am among you to serve. And when you are free from guilt, you are free to serve. It was after World War II when in one of the German towns, some college students went to help clean up a city that had been bombarded and they found a statue of Jesus that had been toppled and they put it back up standing in its place. But the hands had been blown off and one of the college students scribbled on a cheap sign and put it at the base that read, he has no hands but ours. Let's pray. Father, the needs are so great and we cannot meet them all, which I suppose causes us to not try to meet any. But we can do something. And what we can do, we must do. And there's glory in the giving and there's joy in the generosity. And there's blessing in the serving. For my Father, Jesus said, will honor those who serve me. Oh Lord, take us out of ourselves by your grace and put us in the place of a servant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.